Hey, it's Jordan with Beat the Press. Uh, this is one of two podcasts I'm doing a week. This one is for free for the masses and the uh, premium one you can find at patreon.com slash Jordan Sheridan reports. Your support going to get me back into the field so I could cover uh, gentlemen like Tim Canova. Uh, I've spoken with you uh, many a times. Uh, you're down in South Florida and you uh, recently made an announcement that you're going to be uh, breaking off and basically breaking up with the Democratic Party uh, and, and running third party uh, to try and defeat Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Uh, that's obviously the major piece. But I want to, before I get to that, uh, th- there's something that's kind of scandalous to me as we hear about Russia and our democracy under threat, but there's barely been any media coverage. You, uh, were, you I think last year, sued uh, Broward County because... Uh, a not small amount of the ballots in your 2016 primary race against Debbie Wasserman Schultz were thrown out. And Politico, of all places, Politico of all places, um, wrote a piece basically pointing this out, that this is against election law. Uh, I I haven't seen anything about it. I actually read a a Sun Sentinel piece about your decision uh, to run third party and they didn't even mention that they they mentioned it as like well canova alleges even though it's not an alleged it happened okay before we get into your decision take us through that because not a lot of people know about that uh i agree it's been a news blackout much the way uh bernie sanders had to deal with a mainstream news blackout during his campaign um when our race ended in august of 2016 Uh, We had some concerns that the official results didn't seem to uh, match with what our expectations were based on um, what I thought were very good field numbers. We had an enormous field operation, knocking on 10 to 12,000 doors a week, phoning uh, another two or 3,000 voters every week and and ranking the voters. So uh, the official results seemed um, suspect. And then I started to hear from a lot of election integrity folks, some of whom had studied the, um, the results, and they found them unbelievable as well. So we put in a public records request. Florida has a very good public records law, and ballots are considered public records. And it should have been a no-brainer that we should have been able to um, inspect the ballots. Uh, instead, the supervisor of elections of Broward County stonewalled us for more than half a year, and I brought a lawsuit last June uh, to ask the court to allow us to um, to exercise our uh, rights under not just Florida's public records law, but it's actually enshrined in the Constitution in Florida. So any citizen, you don't have to be a candidate or a former candidate, should be able to inspect these public records. While the lawsuit was pending is when they actually destroyed the ballots, which is absolutely outrageous. And they didn't destroy a certain percentage of the ballots, they destroyed all of the paper ballots completely. Um, We recently conducted depositions of the supervisor of elections and some of her top lieutenants, and uh, it was quite revealing. The supervisor admitted that they destroyed the ballots in violation of federal law, which requires them to maintain the ballots for 22 months. She um, gave the lame excuse that it was all just a mistake. Uh, She was then asked, how could you sign this destruction order that certified 
that the ballots were not the subject of any pending litigation. And she said, well, yes, I did sign that destruction order. Yes, it did certify that. But I had no idea what I was signing. I sign anything that's put in front of my face. And that's where the case is right now. Um, and it was, in many ways, the last draw for me. I was independent. So for the Sun Sentinel to, to hardly mention it is really incredible. I mean, I, I gave a 40-minute announcement as to why I was uh, running as an independent. And uh, we discussed a lot of the uh, issues facing uh, voters every day. But you know, the first 20 minutes of this talk, I think, was all about the ballot destruction and, and nothing else. Uh, but that's the Sun Sentinel for you. They are part of, uh, I think, the second largest newspaper chain in the country. And uh, when it comes to uh, covering our race, I'm sure they take their orders from corporate headquarters a thousand miles away. And, you know, what's really interesting to me is... You know, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, uh, obviously, I mean, I don't I don't I don't make any uh, bones about it. If I lived in your district, I would be voting for you. Uh, I think she's really a face of everything wrong with not just the Democratic Party, but politics in general. But let's say, for example, those ballots weren't thrown out. And let's say uh, it shows that something uh, nefarious went on in that election. And let's say you won. Or let's say you only lost by three or four points rather than, I believe, 12 was the final count. Uh, that's a whole different ballgame. That changes not just your momentum for a re-election campaign. Let's say, for argument's sake, you only lost by a few points. Uh, it helps with fundraising. It helps actually uh, with you getting endorsements because it's not you just barely lost to her uh, in, in that scenario. Uh, it helps a lot of... Um, progressives who might want to run for uh, office, but say, oh, you know, it's hopeless. You know, even Tim Canova, who is the most um, noteworthy down ballot uh, candidate in 2016, he got, you know, he lost by 12 points. So there's a lot of ramifications, not just that it's undemocratic, but we don't really know how much you lost by or if you actually lost. Well, that's right. Um, no doubt um, this is an attempt. Uh, they they they've been trying to discredit our campaign from the moment we announced we were running two years ago. Um, now they say, well, well, let me back up and say, when we first put in the public records request in November of 2016, they said they had not done any digital scanned images of the ballots, which struck as it struck us as very strange because really it doesn't take much. It's a matter of, you know, flipping a switch to have the scanning machines uh, actually take uh, ballot images. A year later, when they admitted that they had destroyed the paper ballots, they then said, well, we actually do have digital scanned images after all. So you don't really know what to believe. And the election experts I talked to, they say without the paper ballots to compare them with, the digital scanned images are pretty much worthless, that you can alter them by manipulating the software of the scanning machines. So they could have engineered any result that they wanted. And there are a lot of election uh, justice, election integrity folks who have studied these issues much more than me. Uh, fractional voting, flipping votes. There's so easy to hack into these machines. Um, you don't have to be uh, all the way in Russia to do this. Uh, so uh, it's, it's outrageous. To me, it's been a big education. Um, I, I think the only way to have an election system that's transparent Transparent and verifiable is to do what we did for 200 years in this country, which is to have 100% paper ballots 
that are counted by hand in public on election night and reported immediately at the local precinct level on election night. All over Western Europe, countries have banned the electronic voting machines because they know they can be hacked, they know the software can be manipulated. Uh, the United, Stank, United States ranks dead last among major democracies for election integrity. And what would it really take to conduct an election system the way I described? You know, the federal government just gave a one and a half trillion dollar tax cut. It gives tens of billions of dollars of subsidies, hundreds of billions every year to corporate America. The Federal Reserve has given trillions of dollars of subsidies to these big Wall Street banks. It would probably cost just a few billion dollars to employ ordinary Americans in whatever numbers are required, 100,000 of them, whatever's required, to count ballots in public by hand on election night and to make sure that we have real honest elections. But, uh, you know, Congress doesn't do that. They haven't yet. Uh, the uh, companies that run these election uh, uh, electronic voting machines have a lot of political clout. And the incumbents don't want to rock the boat. After all, uh, it's a system that um, officially uh, anointed them as winners of their elections. Right. You know, uh, before I get to the, the latest where you're running as an independent, just bigger scale. We, I mean, I've, I've been hearing and watching this hyperventilation now for over two years. It's, it's exhausting with... Uh, Everything from Russia hacked the Vermont electrical grid to Russia hacked the 2016 election. Now unnamed officials say they hacked voting machines, but nothing was stolen. But literally you have a case right there in South Florida of confirmed, not Russia, uh, a supervisor of elections who, if I'm not mistaken, is kind of in the Debbie camp. Um, oh, Debbie Washington Schultz camp. Her yes, name is Brenda Snipes. Yes. Brenda Snipes. Uh, Brenda Snipes. Uh, but there's barely anything on that. I think I know why, but I'd like to know your opinion, because that's real. If we have a democracy, that's a real attack on democracy that is crickets. Yes, I know. Uh, do we have the rule of law? Do we have equal justice under the law in this country? And I've been critical for, for years that the Justice Department, uh, when it was headed by Eric Holder, uh, never brought a single criminal prosecution against any high-level banker for a multi-trillion dollar fraud on the American public that collapsed uh, our economy. Uh, no real criminal investigation done there. So what does that tell you about equal justice under the law? Here, yes, you're absolutely right. Brenda Snipes, the supervisor of elections, is clearly in the Wasserman Schultz camp and has been for a while. Uh, her top lieutenant who destroyed all the ballots and, and carried out the destruction order, Mr. Dozel Spencer, had not one but two framed photographs of himself standing with a politician on the shelf of his office. Just one politician with two framed photographs of him with her, and that was Debbie Wasserman Schultz. No explanation as to why Debbie and nobody else. And then uh, the lawyer for Brenda Snipes uh, in our litigation offered to give the court an affidavit from Wasserman Schultz to help try to stop the litigation and the judge rightly declined that offer. So why would Debbie Wasserman Schultz be trying to stop a public records request? What is it she's afraid of? There should certainly be a criminal investigation of, of this and of other um, frauds on the public. Uh, I've been speaking out uh, about the kinds of election rigging and voter suppression and purging of uh, voter rolls that occurred in the Democratic primaries against Bernie Sanders in 2016. 
New York City is, is maybe the most uh, notable one uh, because they, they pretty much admit it. The New York City Board of Elections last October uh, admitted in a, in a civil consent decree that they had uh, purged more than 200,000 citizens from the voting rolls in the days leading up to the Sanders-Clinton primary. And uh, in that consent decree, they promised they would never do it again. And, and that's supposed to be enough to just say, okay, let's let bygones be bygones. It won't ever happen again because after all, they promised it won't happen again. That's like, that's like Hillary Clinton. I'm going to tell Wall Street to cut it out now. Cut it out. <laughs> exactly. And, and it's like these Wall Street consent decrees where these banks admit you know, that they committed these frauds. They promised not to do it again. At least the banks have to pony up some kind of money when they do it. Um, there's been no repercussions uh, for this kinds of these kinds of frauds um, in in the Democratic primary elections. There certainly should be a criminal investigation of what New York City did. It does seem strange that why is it that it seems like all of the voters who were uh, disenfranchised, who were purged from the list, happened to just be Bernie Sanders supporters? Was there some coordination going on between the Board of Elections in New York City? and whoever is running the van voter database for the DNC uh, to make sure that it's likely Sanders voters who are targeted and wiped off the voting rolls. I have no idea. Uh, it's all speculation at this point because there's not a criminal investigation and that's what we need. Otherwise it creates what economists call a moral hazard uh, where it's creating incentives to just do this kind of um, wrongdoing ag again, th uh, these kinds of frauds again and again. Right. So obviously this week uh, you made the announcement that you uh, were renouncing uh, Democratic Party status and you're going to run as an independent. Uh, just for the audience to, as a reminder, the district you're running in now the second time, uh, you know, South Florida, fairly decent as far as wealth. Um, there's a large swath of older uh, Americans. Uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz is also, uh, memory serves me correct, the first Jewish uh, person uh, elected Congress from Florida. There's a lot of Jewish people in that district. There also is a lot of uh, Latinos, uh, African Americans, but that district, the most reliable voters uh, are, you know, older people who are traditional, you know, capital D Democratic Party. I saw it when I was covering your race down there because I kind of infiltrated one of her fundraisers and was stunned. At, I mean, I think I was the youngest person by quite some time. No offense to older people, but that's just the reality. So what went into deciding, uh, you know, I guess six months out uh, to run independent? I'd say there were um, two major factors um, that led me to make this decision. First is, as we were discussing the ballot destruction and all that represents, you could say that the Democrats in many ways pushed me out uh, as they've tried to be pushing me and other progressive challengers out for more than two years now. Uh, when I show up to a Democratic Party function, um, a Broward County um, uh, executive committee meeting with a couple of hundred folks there, or a small Democratic club with a few dozen people, uh, the reception is quite often the same. That among rank and file voters, they're happy to see me. They come up and shake my hand. They want to talk to me. But the leadership sees me there. And, um, you know, they don't even utter my name. I'm, I'm that man, as in don't let that man near the microphone. Uh, the, the last Democratic Club luncheon I went to, where our campaign bought a table for the luncheon, 
I was not permitted to get up and say hello, the two minute stump speech that candidates often get. Um, I, they mentioned me um, in passing, uh, but really very briefly. And yet Debbie Wasserman Schultz's aide was able to get up and speak for 10 minutes. And they said that was because Debbie Wasserman Schultz provided a cake for the luncheon and I did not. Um, I, I'm not kidding you, it's, it's always some shifting excuse. They're fine with um, backing Wasserman Schultz even when she dodges debates. Um, the chair of the Broward Democratic Party during our last race was constantly quoted in the newspaper denigrating my campaign and promoting Wasserman Schultz's in violation of the party's neutrality rules and promises. So here I was facing the prospect of a closed Democratic primary at the end of August that would presumably be supervised by the same supervisor who had just torn up my ballots. Uh, that le led me to think, well, we'd have a fairer shot on the ballot in a November general election where at least the Republicans would have every incentive to make sure that the election is conducted in a fair an impartial manner that, that it, it absolutely is saying a lot. And um, the second factor that led me here was um, seeing how the electorate has been changing in recent years, not just in this district, but across the country. Those diehard Democratic super voters who will always vote the party line and the incumbent uh, because that's what they're told to do. And because they don't really go beyond and research who the other candidates are. In many ways, they are the low information voters. Uh, well, they're getting older and they're dying off. And uh, yet, what is the fastest growing part of the electorate? It's the millennials and those younger. And we see by um, all estimates that 60 to 70 percent of those younger voters refuse to register Republican or Democrat. These are non-party affiliation, which means they cannot vote in a closed August Democratic primary, but they can vote in November. Those are a lot of the voters that we will be engaging. Uh, our message resonates with them, uh, whether it's talking about uh, the violence in the schools and on the streets, but really it's the economic and social agenda that resonates with them more than anything. They are more progressive than the mainstream of the Democratic Party and certainly than the Democratic Party establishment on issue after issue. So if folks go online to timcanova.com and they go on our issues page, they're going to see a very progressive agenda in great detail. An, an agenda for, it's a New Deal agenda, jobs for all uh, based on public works, investment in our people and in our infrastructure, Medicare for all, uh, ending the drug war, ending mass incarceration in the new Jim Crow, taking care of the environment, converting to 100% renewable energy as fast as possible. And on all of these issues, Wasserman Schultz is on the corporate side. She takes money from all those big corporate interests from millions of dollars, from big Wall Street banks and payday lenders to fossil fuel companies, big sugar, big pharma, big alcohol, private prison companies, and she's been pushing their agenda for years. So the voters are going to have a real choice come November between a corporate-funded, corporate-owned Democrat, a Republican, no doubt corporate-owned as well, 
and a real alternative in a, a, a progressive grassroots campaign that, that we, we will be offering uh, to the people of this district. Right. And, you know, one thing I have seen going around the country, uh, but, I mean, obviously the national media is pretty useless, but the local media, I think so. I mean, I, I literally was canvassing, uh, not canvassing. I covered some of your volunteers canvassing, knocking on doors. Uh, majority of people didn't even know that there was a, uh, a Democratic primary or the date. Uh, there's very little local media coverage of the candidates or you, per se. When there is, it's pretty much incomplete. Um, yeah. And that's nationwide. We don't really see the media uh, in most uh, aspects. I just tweeted this morning, oh, I wonder why CNN didn't report that the Keystone Pipeline uh, leak was actually double uh, estimates. Well, they just had a commercial for American Petroleum Institute, go figure. But how do you work around the fact that A, uh, that district is, uh, you know, does have a lot of older Americans, capital D Democrats. B, the media, from what I see, is in bed with Debbie Wasserman Schultz down there. Uh, how do you get your message out to enough people in that district that could put you over the top? Well, we, we follow what we did last time. And it requires raising money from the grassroots. Uh, people have been stepping up and going to TimCanova.com and making small donations. Last campaign, 209,000 times somebody in this country clicked on their computer mouse and donated an average of $17 to our campaign. And since I made the announcement that I'm running independent, we've seen a significant upturn in donations to our campaign, where we raised more in just the first few days than we had been raising in a typical month. Um, so with those resources that we're raising online, last time we built the biggest ground game in the country. We had four field offices, I think 50 full-time field organizers and deputy field organizers, and close to 200 volunteers all knocking door to door on a daily basis in the heat and humidity of uh, South Florida in August. And by knocking on 10,000 to 12,000 doors a week at the height of the campaign, we were delivering the message that there is a primary, that there is a real uh, alternative to what you have, that these are the issues we're running on. And these were two-way conversations that our uh, field organizers and our, our volunteers were having with the voters on their doorsteps and in their living rooms. They were coming back and telling us what are the issues that resonate with these voters? What is it that they are concerned about? And we weren't surprised to see that they fit in perfectly with what our agenda was. I say I'm not surprised. I've been a law professor for more than 20 years. So I'm around law students. Uh, I understand what the problems are that they confront every day in their personal lives and that their parents and loved ones confront every day. And to me, you take a look at the financial collapse of 2008 and the recovery. It's been uh, the weakest recovery recorded in American history. Uh, it's at no time did the annual growth rate exceed 2%. Um, and I think it's very much been a jobs depression. Even if the official unemployment rate is low, that masks the reality that millions, mostly of older workers, baby boomers, have left the workforce discouraged. They've drawn down their retirements. A lot of their retirement funds were lost from the financial collapse itself people over 50 who are unable to get jobs. A lot of it is age discrimination, but among the, the millennials and younger, 18 to 34 year olds, more likely to be living at home with their parents, unable to find 
a real job with a, a job that provides a, a decent income, uh, let alone benefits. Um, so it's, it's an incredibly challenging environment. We were hearing this from voters all the time. And this is our agenda is to deal with this, um, is, is to have the kind of New Deal programs that would address the, the suffering that people are feeling every day. So it's by building a grassroots field campaign that we will reach out and, and, and speak to the voters. Uh, we start this campaign with much higher name recognition, uh, obviously, than the last time. When I ran last time, uh, except for among uh, some law students and faculty uh, at Southeastern University, um, there weren't a lot of people who would have heard of me in the district. Uh, that's much different now. Uh, wherever we go in the district, people are coming up, telling me they voted for me, they've heard of me, they, they, they want to help and volunteer for the campaign. Um, we did a search recently of just four towns in our district. Hollywood, Hallandale, Aventura, and Dania Beach. And uh, just from the last campaign, we had over 400 people who had expressed interest in volunteering for us. So uh, Wasserman Schultz has a war chest funded by big corporate America. Uh, we've got uh, volunteers, we've got people power, uh, and we've got uh, the issues on our side. Uh, so I think we can, uh, we can do this. Uh, I'm very excited about our prospects of, of winning in November. But we do need help uh, from people in our district and from the American people to go online and make donations. Small donations add up. Go to timcanova.com and to spread the word to others. Uh, the more people who are able to donate small amounts, uh, the more this grassroots campaign will catch fire. And we're not going to be discouraged if there is a fundraising imbalance. You know, a few years ago when Eric Cantor, the uh, second ranking Republican in the House of Representatives, was defeated by a little-known college professor named David Bratt. Cantor had outspent him um, $5 million to 300000 Okay, so uh, people want change, uh, and it will be hunting season on incumbents like Wasserman Schultz for as far into the future as the eye can see. And I'll throw in shamelessly one more plug. Uh, I would like to go cover you. So patreon.com slash Jordan Sheridan reports. I want to get to two... More, to me, life and death situations that affect Florida and, and nationally. Um, I think even from 2016 to now, the environment has become much, much more endangered, uh, particularly in Florida. I mean, I went to college in Tampa. People moved down to Florida. You got beautiful beaches, palm trees, fresh air. Um, um, the water quality used to be Pretty, pretty good. You've had the Sable pipeline go in in Florida. Uh, you've had uh, reports of water contamination. You've had reports of nuclear waste sites <laughs> contamination. And I just tweeted this morning, I've been working on a major story that Flint's water is being declared safe, even though the science has more holes in it than most people's lives <laughs> in America. Uh, I actually tweeted out a picture of brown water that was taken yesterday. Can you talk about um, the environmental concerns in Florida and nationwide? Because I really don't hear much from Debbie Wasserman Schultz other than platitudes, but I do see uh, donors from Big Oil. Um, I uh, Just uh, two or three nights ago, I went to a uh, local Democratic club meeting uh, because they were hosting um, a panel to discuss the environmental challenges we're facing. Wasserman Schultz showed up, spoke for 10 minutes. It was all platitudes. She claimed that the Sierra Club has endorsed her. They endorsed her last time. Maybe they endorsed her again. 
Um, I know the local Sierra Club folks wanted me the last time, and I'm sure they want me again. It's the problem is the Sierra Club leadership in Washington, D.C. apparently uh, is in bed with Wasserman Schultz for whatever reasons, uh, I don't know. The Sierra Club has taken the lead in trying to challenge the Sable Trail Pipeline, so have we. Sable Trail Pipeline, and I should say Wasserman Schultz has never said a negative word about the Sable Trail Pipeline because she takes a lot of money from the consortium of companies that are behind the pipeline, Florida Power and Light and FPNL's parent company, Nextera. Um, the Sable Trail Pipeline is a 515-mile pipeline uh, from uh, Alabama through Georgia into northern and central Florida that uh, will be pumping about a billion cubic feet of highly pressurized fracked gas every day. Uh, apparently, the end game is to export it in the form of liquefied natural gas. The, the pipeline goes through some of the most important and ecologically fragile areas of Florida. The Upper Floridan Aquifer that provides uh, drinking water for 60% of the state. Um, if the pipeline should uh, crack open, such as because of the sinkhole, and this is a lot of sinkhole country it goes through, um, that would uh, certainly start to um, contaminate our drinking water pretty quickly. Um, and it really kind of locks in more years of a fossil fuel future. And that's uh, one of the great um, dangers of this pipeline. Uh, I have supported uh, banning fracking in the state of Florida and for that matter nationwide. It took the Obama Environmental Protection Agency something like five years, and it was only at the very end um, of, um, of his administration that the EPA came out with a report that pretty much concluded in a mealy-mouthed way that fracking does actually contaminate drinking water. So there's these kinds of threats to our drinking water. Uh, I should say they go beyond the Sable Trail pipeline because of rising sea levels. Um, and we are on the front line of that in South Florida and really all of the Florida coastline. Uh, because of these rising sea levels, we've seen saltwater intrusion into the aquifer here in South Florida. Um, if those present trends will continue, the, the day may come where the aquifer uh, south of, um, in South Florida, uh, around the Everglades, uh, becomes unsustainable which is why we need to allow Lake Okeechobee, which is, I think, the second largest lake within uh, a state in the United States. Uh, we need it to flow naturally into the Everglades to recharge the Everglades, recharge the aquifer. And that's been hung up because of opposition from big agriculture, big sugar, um, these vested interests that have spent millions of dollars um, corrupting both parties in Florida over the last three decades. Um, so these are just some of the environmental challenges in Florida. And Wasserman Schultz has, has just gone AWOL on this, um, as have many of um, the, the politicians in this state who take money from these large corporate interests. We're able to speak the truth about it because we don't take a penny from these corporate interests. We rely on small donations from folks with limited means like, like you and me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, going from one uh, life or death situation to another, uh, what's astounding to me, you have 17 people were killed uh, less than two months ago. Um, there's already been uh, two, one school shooting since then that I know of, uh, the YouTube shooting uh, since then. What's interesting that the media hasn't been reporting in both of those subsequent shootings, both in Maryland 
And the YouTube shooting, uh, there was handguns used. In Maryland, uh, unfortunately, one person did die, but it was a school and it was a handgun. Uh, at the YouTube shooting, the shooter died. Uh, nobody else died. And that was a handgun. Uh, the governor of Florida, who I think the secret's out, is going to be running for Senate there, Rick Scott, has, let's call it what it is, he's bent over for the NRA. He is now doing, you know, some mealy mouth reforms uh, before his Senate run, but he has passed more pro-gun legislation in Florida than any other governor, if I'm right. Uh, can you kind of talk about, uh, to me, uh, it looked like Florida could be the breaking point. You had this great march for lives, but now it's quieting down again. NRA um, donations has, I think, doubled since the, uh, Parkland. Uh, what What do you think? Uh, is this a turning point, or is there more, more, a lot more work to do? Um, I think both. I do think it is a bit of a turning point, um, and it's a turning point because the, this young generation, uh, that has been referred to as the school shooting generation have um, finally gotten very active, and I don't think just here in Florida, but around the country. But they're up against incredible, incredibly vested, entrenched interests. Um, the gun lobby through the National Rifle Association has um, undue influence, uh, not just in the U.S. Congress, but in these state legislatures all over the country. Uh, certainly, we need sensible gun safety legislation, um, and maybe we'll start getting a little bit of it you're right, there's been some reform, but it's been very minor so far in Tallahassee since the shooting. Uh, but I think it, you could expect a number of things to occur. There will be more shootings. And as there are more shootings, there will be more activism by this younger generation. Uh, I've had, um, I've been very clear, it's on our website at timkenova.com at the issues page, uh, where I stand on these gun safety issues. Um, and uh, there's not a lot of difference between Wasserman Schultz on gun safety legislation. Uh, I think the problem goes beyond gun safety. Uh, you can have certain societies where there's a lot of gun ownership, but there's not these kinds of regular shootings every day, whether shootings in the street or in schools or in workplaces. I do think we have a mental health crisis in this country. Um, that's not to say that the answer is just, oh, let's simply try to be taking guns away from people who have mental health issues, um, and we will define that very broadly. That glorifies violence um, from a very young age. It's a society where men, boys, teens, are told that uh, they should keep their feelings locked inside. Uh, if they are um, angry um, or sad or depressed, um, they should not be sharing those feelings with anyone. Um, it comes out eventually in the form of anger and violence. Um, I've spoken to mental health professionals in the schools, K-12, the American um, uh, Guidance Counselor Association recommends one guidance counselor for every 250 students in, in, in our K-12 schools. Um, the guidance counselor who was briefing me on this was the only guidance counselor in a school with 370 students, Complete, completely overworked. We need to have, you know, if they're recommending one for every 250, we should be, we should be trying to have one guidance counselor for every 100 students and one mental health therapist on site for every couple of 100 students as well. We need more mentoring. 
We need more male teachers at a lot of these schools. We need more teachers in general. They need to be uh, more highly paid. Um, uh, it has to be a profession that people can afford to stay in. And uh, we need much smaller class sizes. Schools have become, in many ways, like prisons for these students. When I went to K-12 to uh, public schools as a child, we had art, we had uh, music. Uh, school was a fun place to go to. Uh, the way we're looking now, those kinds of programs have been cut out of a lot of the schools. Um, they don't allow students to naturally develop their creativity. Instead, they are taught to memorize facts that are going to be on a test. We are really creating um, uh, a system that looks much more like incarceration and telling these students that they should not be thinking, they should just be following orders. And then to make matters worse, we now have a situation where their confinement during the day at these schools can be interrupted at any time with potentially a death sentence, uh, a school shooting. Um, and I know it might sound um, overblown to talk like that, but I don't think it is anymore. Uh, since the Parkland shooting, I've been receiving dozens of emails every week from teachers, from parents, and from students themselves telling me how petrified they are to go to school each day. That when um, an alarm bell rings, everybody wonders if, you know, it's going to be their turn to have a school shooting. I spoke to one teacher who said that there was a lockdown at her school because there had been a shooting at a nearby school. And for something like four hours, she was huddled in a classroom hugging young student, children who were crying, who needed to go to the bathroom, all wondering what was going to happen if there was a shooting occurring at their school. And this woman, who's not paid a lot of money, overworked, stressed out, reached the realization that she was going to have to put her life on the line if somebody was coming through that door. This is intolerable. This should not be the case in this country. Yes, guns are a huge part of the problem. I don't disagree. But it's the culture that glorifies and finds it acceptable to use guns to settle conflicts. Um, that that must change in this country. Yeah, I agree. Should also add that a lot of uh, mental health issues come from economic insecurity and hopelessness as well. So, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. You know, the statistics for years have shown that for every increase of one percent in unemployment, um, there's a huge increase in suicides, homicides, domestic abuse, all kinds of social pathologies. Well, if our way of dealing with it is to simply redefine what it means to be unemployed so that we throw off the unemployment rolls, tens of millions of discouraged workers, tens of millions of people who work part time so they're not unemployed. That's not changing the problem. That's just um, masking it. Right. And last question. Now that you're kind of, uh, you know, this liberated independent, obviously you weren't shy about talking about the Democratic Party as a Democrat. But, you know, what's interesting to me is I get criticism. Jimmy Dore gets criticism. Politicians like you get criticism that you are like you're going to help elect Trump, uh, reelect Trump and you're going to help the Republicans keep the House and yada, yada, yada. When it, as I can't speak for you, but as far as me. I'm trying to expose things so we could help get rid of extreme conservatism. Um, but it seems to me the blueprint for 2016, which was just like, let's make Trump intolerable, uh, that is still the blueprint from the Democratic Party, only it's become worse. Now it's 
fundraisers, uh, DNC emails about porn stars and Russian trolls and all the rest. Uh, now on the outside for the Democratic Party, do, do you see a deja vu as, as we head into the midterms in 2020? Yes, uh, nothing has changed. Um, and the mainstream of the Democratic Party has only itself to blame. Not even Donald Trump, not Vladimir Putin, and certainly not progressives. Their problems started well before 2016. You can go back to 2010 and 2014. These were bloodbaths for Democrats, not just in Congress, but nationwide. So we wake up now and the Democratic Party is in its weakest position in the U.S. House of Representatives, in the Senate, in state legislatures, in governorships, since any time since 1920. It's 98 years ago. Uh, I've come to believe that the Democratic Party, certainly in the state of Florida, but it seems this way everywhere, nationally and in, and in all the states, uh, has become a conduit uh, for money, uh, for taking money from corporate lobbyists and paying it out to this consultant media complex. And as long as it fulfills that function, it, it stays entrenched in power. Um, and it's got two objectives, a primary objective and a secondary objective. The primary objective is to literally win their primaries, is to defeat progressive grassroots challengers and keep the Democratic Party a corporate-dominated party that will take money from the corporate lobbyists and pay it out to these consultants and, um, and media advisors. Their secondary objective is to win general elections in November if they can against Republicans. But that's only secondary um, because the corporate interests that back the Democratic establishment like it that way. So those corporate interests, it doesn't mean that much of a difference whether it's a Democrat or a Republican who wins in November as long as they're taking corporate money. So the real challenge is to unseat these Democrats in primaries. I tried to do it last time in a primary. Uh, it's uncertain uh, what the outcome of that election was. And I've had to muzzle my skepticism of the official results for far too long. But the destruction of those ballots in violation of federal law and in violation of a court's order has really opened people's eyes that perhaps there was something way off there. Um, so the Democratic Party is in need of reform. Uh, I have a lot of respect for folks, progressives, who are challenging incumbents in Democratic primaries. I'm not here saying you've got a Dem exit and that's the only way to go. Uh, I respect people who are fighting this corporate machine wherever they're fighting it, uh, whether it's within the Democratic Party or outside the Democratic Party. But this is a fight that we have to have. We can't just say, well, it's beating me down. I've got to throw in my cards. Somebody else will do it. Um, the, the stakes are just too high right now, and, uh, and we're still fighting, and, and I think we have a path forward. And uh, since I made that decision and announced that decision to run as an independent, like I said earlier, we've seen a, a, a big upsurge in donations at timcanova.com. Uh, I plead for everybody who's hearing this message uh, to come to our aid. This is a critical hour. We need your help. And uh, this is how we will overcome. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just add, and you know, it's totally a plug for myself as well, but whether it's me or other media, people want to support independent media. Uh, you need real media covering campaigns like this because yeah. you 
Tim and, and other candidates like him, whether it's you're running as a Democrat or independent, there is a information gap. I have seen it up close when I cover Tim Canova's volunteers knocking on doors. A lot of people don't either don't know there's an election or don't know who Tim Canova or the candidates are, but they do use their phones and they do go on YouTube and they do, you know, so whether it's supporting, you know, someone like me to actually get in the field to do it or, or whoever you want to support, uh, I think media is a big part of the picture. I, I, I agree, Jordan. Uh, the mainstream media here bends over backwards first not to cover a race like this. Um, they'd rather uh, cover just mindless distractions, to tell you the truth, or the local crime news. Uh, certain statements to try to make an insurgent challenger look bad. Uh, it's only because of alternative media. Real journalists like you, you mentioned Jimmy Dore, Tim Black. There, there are a number of folks out there who are covering this race and will continue to cover it. I think it's so important what you're doing. Uh, it was so important two years ago. You were one of the only folks who were out there covering what was happening in Flint, Michigan, uh, and then the Dakota Access Pipeline when the mainstream media was staying away from it. So folks do need to step up and to support uh, independent journalism uh, like you're providing for us. Thanks, Tim. I, I do have a feeling, whether it's from uh, viewers helping me out or me just tapping into my scarce fundings, I will be down there uh, as soon as I can. Uh, thank you for taking so much time. Uh, Tell Thank people, uh, I know the website, where else could people find you? Yeah, timcanova.com uh, is, is the website. Uh, on Facebook, we're at Tim Canova FL, And I think on Twitter, it is Tim underscore Canova. Uh, and we're on Instagram as well. Uh, and I, I hope you are able to come down sooner the better. Uh, we are looking forward to your coverage of this race and all the other great work that you're doing. Well, power to the people, patreon.com slash Jordan Charity Reports. I uh, look forward to seeing you. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jordan.